You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Jennifer, why don't you come up here a second? I know this is a horrible thing to do to anyone. But Jennifer went to Asbury, and I'd like for her just to share a few minutes with um, what what her experience was there. So... Are you going to give me the whole service? Oh, Lord. Worst things have happened, I'm sure. What do you want me to share? Because <laughs> I already talked to you some. What do you want me to share? Um, well, let me just ask, ask you questions. Okay. Um, when you went to Asbury, based on what you had heard, what were you expecting when you got there? Well, a lot of my exposure to what was happening began on Twitter because I have my own little corner of Twitter that I love. And there were not a lot of positive reviews on Twitter because people were trying to define what a revival is. And um, I told you that I've been around long enough (laughs) in a lot of different denominations and movements to know that when there's a move of the Lord, you can't take it lightly. And so I felt so pulled and so I didn't go, so a lot of people who went, went to, to experience something. And, you know, I was born into the 1970s charismatic movement, and I have stories to tell. Um, so I didn't know what to expect, except that I knew I needed to be there. And I, you know, like I talked to you for years, we've had a lot of relational loss, and um, I've just grieved over so many things. And, I, you know, a couple of months ago, the Lord told me during service, you have a broken heart. And so I wanted to go and see what was happening with the young people because I have three kids. My oldest is 21. And I also was a teacher. And so I taught millennials and then I stayed home. And then I taught Generation Z. And I've just grieved and prayed over this generation. And so when I went, um, I expected to see something happening with them. My leg is shaking. I'm a little nervous. That's okay. So, yeah, I'll just Hang stand on. right here. So, um, but what I experienced was a lot of people that I had read online talked about, you know, this incredible peace that they had never felt before. And I thought, well, I've felt that before. But what I saw was this great outpouring on young people. And I told you that I had talked with my dad. My dad's very prophetic. And I would said, I'm going to go. And then I said, I'm not going to go. There's stuff at home. And he called me back and said, you need to go. Yeah. And he said, you are old enough that you're going to be a spectator because this is for the young people, but you need to see it. Wow. So what I, that's exactly what I experienced. Um, there were plenty of older people there, but they, had, they kept the front section for the young people. And it was just so clear that it was just being poured out on them. Oh. So, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So, and I just want to say this one other thing. So, sure. you know, Generation Z, they they have a, a rough word that, world that they're growing up in. And they're marked by loneliness, anxiety, and depression. I mean, it's just rife. And the three things that I kept coming away with were community, joy, and hope. That's awesome. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and I, I did tell you that, you know, um, 
you know, the end of that first night, you know, one of the things I follow a lot of teachers on Twitter because I, you know, that's who I am. <laughs> and they're always saying the kids are not okay. And the Lord was telling me the kids are okay. Yeah, the kids on. are okay. Jesus yeah. knows, don't you? Yeah. Thank you. One of the things I saw happen here last Sunday was I was preaching on joy, and so people started crying. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to preach on being poor. And And, uh, no, but um, I've understood that what's going on, what went on in, in Asbury was an outpouring of the kindness of God. And when you think about particularly the last five years and how vitriolic, argumentative, hostile social media has become, and we have generations growing up in that, that um, it, it's we need the kindness of the Lord uh, experientially. And so we're studying the fruit of the Spirit. And so I was going to do, uh, I was going to talk this morning about uh, kindness. Um, little history background, uh, biblical, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sometimes when the Lord touches me, I stop making sense. So if I stop making sense, I'm even, I'm even either having a stroke or the Lord's touching me, so. And if I do make sense, that's really the Lord. (laughs) But the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And one um, spiritual principle that we should pay attention to is um, we become what we behold. And that's it's so important what you pay attention to 24 hours a day, what you set your mind on, what you feed on, because it will affect who you become. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. So Paul's talking about what you behold, you become. And so we want to behold the kindness of the Lord. And to behold the kindness of the Lord, we're going to go through um, several different verses, several different episodes um, that show us kindness. Joel 3.13 says, So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. Return to the Lord because he is those four things. Gracious. Somebody say gracious with me. Merciful. Slow to anger of great kindness out of the book of Joel. Psalm 145, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger 
and great in mercy. The Lord is good to everyone, and his tender mercies are over all his works. That's um, a song they used to sing 4,000 years ago, probably. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, just tremendous words of Jesus. Are not two little sparrows sold for a penny? Anybody seen a penny lately? I think it costs more than a penny to make a penny now because there's so little in them and things are so high. But um, are not two little sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's consent and notice? So God's in charge of all the birds, but personally in charge. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I I take that verse literally. Why couldn't God know the number? I mean, some heads aren't that uh, much to keep up with, maybe. But um, that was a little funny. But uh, think about that actually being true that God has that much care for every person that he could actually tell you the running number of hairs on your head at any given point during the day. So he takes a special interest in us because he's kind. Even sparrows don't fall to the ground without him paying attention, and he numbers the hairs of your head. Well, as we see the kindness of the Lord, it should make us that way too. First Corinthians thirteen four talks about love. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. And Ephesians four thirty two says, "Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." In book of Titus, chapter 3, I'm going to read 1 through 7, we find out that God's transformational kindness has appeared. So Paul's writing this letter to Titus. He's giving him, he's charging him with how to relate to the people that look to him for leadership. And he says, Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Here's a really good one. Get ready for conviction. To speak evil of no one. Anybody feel a little bad about that one? That bothered me when I read that a couple days ago. Speak evil of no one. Because it's easy to do. To be peaceable, gentle. Showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So what we see there is that the manifest kindness of God appeared in the person of Christ Jesus. And as Paul writes this letter, he talks about the way people are transformed is they are no longer under the compulsion to try to become righteous by what they do, but they become righteous by being gift, being gift, being given the gift of righteousness. And the word of the Lord washes them, regenerates them, and the Holy Spirit renews them when he's poured out abundantly. And so, um, I, I don't know, um, if your experience has been like mine experience, but how many of you have, um, had an encounter with the presence of the Holy Spirit actually physically touching you? Well, well, one of the things that happens to me is I instantly become weak. I instant, I mean, I, I can feel that matter, matter of fact, it happened to me this morning before I got up out of bed. I felt the presence of the Lord in my room. And, um, now I hope this makes sense, but one, one of the things that happens when the Lord manifests himself is we, we feel two ways at the same time. I wish this would stop and I wish this would keep going. Now, if you don't understand that, you just simply don't understand it, and that's okay. But this morning, I felt like I wish this would stop, and I hope I don't mess this up or lose this experience with the Lord, because the Spirit of God will actually touch our, our, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he will make alive your mortal body. It's a body, emotion, sensory experience, and sometimes it can actually short circuit your your um, rational thoughts. Sometimes what he does doesn't make that much sense. But then Paul, uh, rather Jesus, goes on and he describes the Father's kindness this way. In, in Luke chapter 6, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. For he is kind. God is kind. The kindness uh, fruit of the Spirit is a characteristic of the personality, the nature, the substance, however you want to phrase it, of God himself, for he is kind. To who? The unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. So when we're convinced of the Lord's kindness, it will energize us to love our enemies. How many of us are good at enemy loving? It'll help us do good. It'll actually, when it says lend, hoping for nothing in return, that could be financial. 
But I think that speaks about the relationship where you do good to people just to do good. And you're not disappointed when they don't do good back. That's what it really is to give. Now, reaping and sowing, the Bible talks about that. Paul uses the idea of the farmer. There's no farmer that plants a crop and hope nothing comes up. He does give expecting something in return. But in the relational, we shouldn't develop relationships with each other that are more a business transaction than a kingdom reality. Love people that don't necessarily have something to give you back, or that's not your motive. That's what it really is to give. Now, one of the things that really struck me about the kindness of God uh, happens um, in the life of Paul the Apostle. At the point I'm referencing, his name was Saul. He became known as Paul later. But Jesus demonstrated remarkable kindness to Paul on the Damascus Road. And so to understand kindness, the kindness of Jesus to Paul, we need to understand what kind of person Paul was. Paul was a religious, mean, evil, religious person. You ever met one of those? Yeah, they were here. I saw them earlier. Those people that I was speaking to. Not you people. Not you people. Actually, we're a pretty non-religious group. How many of you would part of... I mean, just look at those chairs you're sitting in, for goodness sake. That doesn't look like they should be in church. <laughs> or the rest of us. But... um. Anyway, Paul's own words in first, but, but the problem is you can know the Bible back and forward and be in essence an evil, mean person. You sure can. And that hurts the testimony of Jesus. But first Timothy 1, 12 through 15. Uh, Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, Paul's describing himself, a persecutor and an insolent man. An insolent man is an aggressively arrogant person. That's how Paul described himself. But I obtained mercy because I did, did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said this, of whom I am chief. So in Galatians 1.13, Paul again describes himself. You've heard of my earlier career and former manner of life in the Jesus, I'm sorry, Jewish religion. How I persecuted and abused the church of God furiously and extensively and with fanatical zeal did my best to wreak havoc of it and destroy it. And Acts 8.3 tells us, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. 
So, though Saul was intellectually brilliant, devoted to Judaism as a father, he was evil. So blinded by legalism and religion that he persecuted to death those who devoted themselves to following Jesus. When Stephen was martyred, Paul was one of the witnesses and consented to his death. So here is a view of Paul's character before he met the Lord. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violently violently arrogant man, made havoc of the church, drug men and women to prison, breathed threats and murders against the disciples of Jesus, persecuted and abused the church of God furiously and extensively. And so here's what happens over in Acts 9. While Paul was breathing threats and murder, while he had asked letters from the synagogue to go to Damascus to find people, believers, men or women, to bring them bound to Jerusalem, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone round him from heaven and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, how many of you remember what the Lord said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, there's something worth noting. If you are doing harm to Jesus' people, you're doing harm to Jesus himself. He takes it personally. He does. Actually, he says, if you hinder in any negative way one of the children, it would be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast in the depths of the sea. That's pretty serious words from a kind Jesus. <laughs> Nevertheless, a light comes. Saul hears this voice. Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecuting. Listen to the next thing Jesus said. It almost doesn't make any sense. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus knocks him off his horse, and then he says, Paul, isn't this a hard way to live? He's killing people. He's hauling them to jail. He's terrorizing people. But in the kindness of Jesus, he says, Paul, haven't you chosen a very difficult lifestyle? If that's not the kindness of God, I don't know how you find it. I don't know how you could see that. And so Paul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord gave him instructions, and that was the beginning of the faith of the great Apostle Paul. Jesus was concerned for Paul's well-being apart from all the terrible things he was doing. Jesus said, it's hard for you. Now, what are goads? Goads were first-century cattle prods. You know what a cattle prod is? Yeah, that's that's. in other words, Jesus was saying, Paul, what you're doing, you're just provoking pain in your own life. Is this what you should be doing? Why are you persecuting me, Jesus asked him. Have you noticed how many times in the Bible, instead of God correcting us, he asks us questions? Why are you persecuting me? Adam, where are you? 
what, God lost Adam? Adam! He was here a minute ago. No, Adam didn't know where he was. So God will ask us these questions. But Jesus' response to Paul makes the words in Luke even more poignant, for he's kind to the unthankful and evil. I'm going to tell you, Christopher made a great point this morning in our pre-meeting. He was at Riverwalk, and he saw a bald eagle. And so Christopher sees this bald eagle. Everyone else is just fooling around, throwing rocks in the lake and walking around. But, but Christopher had eyes for something above. And see, sometimes to experience the kindness of God, you've got to look for it. See, that eagle was there, and only one person enjoyed it. The kindness of God can be in your life. You don't recognize it. You don't enjoy it. Luke 24 tells the story of two disappointed disciples who left Jerusalem after the death of Jesus. And they were walking down the road, and they were sadly discussing everything that had happened to Jesus or what they thought happened. When Jesus sort of slips in on them and joins their little band of two and continues walking with them, and they didn't recognize him. And so as Jesus is hearing their conversation of depression and hopelessness, he says, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk in or sad? So one of them turns to Jesus and insults him. Yeah, he's insulted. He insults him. He says to Jesus, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? When he was the only one in Jerusalem that really did know what happened and understood the implications. So Jesus says, so the guy says, don't you understand that if things have happened? And so Jesus says, what things? You see, there he is again, the kindness of Jesus reaching into this guy's life, asking the guys the kind of questions that will help him divorce himself from misunderstood reality. Jesus, knowing all of this, acted like he knew none of it to get these two to the point where they would begin to tell him the history of Jesus' experience in Jerusalem from a perspective of absolutely not understanding it so that he could help them. So they begin to basically preach the gospel to Jesus and leave out the resurrection. They talk about how the Jewish authorities delivered him to be condemned. They told him how their hopes of him redeeming Israel ended in failure. Of the women who went to the tomb and said the angels told him he was alive and they didn't know what to think about that. How other men went down there and they didn't see Jesus either. And so at this point, Jesus kicks into his confrontational mode and he says to them, Oh, you foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And then 
book by book in the Old Testament, through the books of Moses, through the prophets, verse by verse as they're walking down the road, Jesus patiently unfolds to these two men all the concepts, ideas, revelations, and insights in the Old Testament that point to who Jesus is. And later on, Jesus acts like he's going to leave them, and they beg him, and that is the word beg. They beg him to stay, and so when he stays, they break bread, and when they break bread, Jesus prays for the bread. He breaks the bread. Suddenly, they see who he is, and he disappears. But the end result of that whole conversation, the end result of Jesus the resurrected Jesus seemed like he'd have better things to do than to go walking down the road to Emmaus to find two disappointed disciples. But he doesn't. He doesn't have anything better to do than to go after one of the, uh, leave the 99. He doesn't have anything better to do than to try to talk you out of your confusion and your hopelessness. He doesn't have anything better to do than that. So they conclude about Jesus when he disappeared. Didn't our hearts burn when he spoke to us out of the scripture? And in the middle of the night, they turned around and walked seven miles back to Jerusalem, back into the purpose of God. Because the purpose of God is not for you to be disappointed. The purpose of God is not for you to stay brokenhearted. The purpose of God is not for you to stay depressed. And when you see your way through the Jesus that is the real Jesus you will go back into the purpose you could have left through your disappointment and hurt. But you do it because there's an energy that comes. You know the greatest thing in the world to be absolutely convinced that something's true that depresses you and discover you're absolutely wrong? That's such a liberating moment to realize how utterly stupid we are and how easily we're convinced of the wrong things. And we know they're wrong because we're miserable. God didn't create us to believe the truth and be miserable. You shall know the truth and the truth shall hang you from the neck until dead. No, you shall know the truth and the truth that shall set you free. You're not free. You got something on board you think's true that's not. Trust Jesus with that reality. Oh, me. What kind of God keeps up with the number of people's hairs? What kind of God notices when one bird dies? What kind of God would interrupt his resurrection celebration to go find two disciples who had the story wrong? Our God. Our God, whose kindness knows no bounds, who has no loss of energy, whose care and delight in his creation and his people burns with his very being. Well, if all that's true, why is things the way they are? I wish I knew. But all I know is I believe the Bible. I believe what I read about Jesus. And I've had in my own life personal experiences of the kindness of God. I was thinking early this morning um, 
I've got a whole file folder on different things the Lord has spoken to me over the last 40 years. Dreams, visions, revelations. And so many of them are personal to help me. For instance, I had a dream one night that I saw a gun safe. How many of you know what a gun safe is? A gun safe is like a, a vault for your firearms if you have firearms. I don't happen to have any. But I saw this gun gun safe, and the Lord was standing there, and I said, um, "I said, what's in that gun safe?" And he said, "Oh, it's your destiny. It's been safe the whole time." I don't know if any of you have ever worried about your future, or got depressed or disappointed because you can't get where you think you need to go. What if one day you woke up and realized God's got your God's got your future. It's secure. He's got your destiny. It's safe. It's safe. Just listen to him. Well, one of the most painful experiences of my life was when my dad died. He was 62, November of 1981. He died suddenly. He died unexpectedly. I'm going to tell you, um, when people you love get older, take time to talk to them now because sometimes later won't work. Tell them, tell them how you feel about them, for goodness sake. Because in my case, I didn't have that chance. My dad, my dad suddenly passed away. He had so I think it was an aneurysm. And that was one of the most traumatic days of my life. And there are people sitting in this room that have no difficulty knowing how that feels. When he passed away, my John Mark, my oldest, was two years old, and Christopher was uh, born in the September, and Dad died October the November, so he was just a couple months old. Then I had two other, have two other children um, who weren't born yet. So none of them, honestly, really knew my dad. They had no real, I mean, John Mark at two years old, he had some, he could sort of remember, my dad had a real deep voice, he could sort of remember the timbre of his voice, because somebody would, an older man might talk like my dad, and John Mark would say, granddad, you know, just so, you knew something was going on, but not much. And so in Sunday morning in January of 2002, so that's 21 years ago, Christopher told me a dream that he'd had that night about my dad. He couldn't recall specific details, but he was left with the sense of knowing my dad for the first time in his life. So Christopher has a dream about this grandfather he never knew, and what happened in that dream was he received some kind of a sense of who my dad was, which is wonderful. Who thinks that's wonderful? I think that's wonderful. I was so excited about it that the Lord would give one of my kids a dream like that that I called my mom to tell her of the dream that Christopher had, and she was excited. And as we were speaking on the phone, I suddenly realized it was my dad's birthday. So on my father's birthday, the Lord gave one of my children a dream with a sense of who my dad was, 
on my dad's birthday. Who does something like that? Mean people would never do that. Kind people would. My dad's birthday, he would have been 83 when that happened. Well, I felt like the Lord gave us that experience like as a gift to bless us and to honor my father. And it meant a lot because my mother never remarried. She went um, 20 years without him. And I told her, I said, Mom, this is like, this dream is like a token from the Lord to us, like a memory you can lock in your heart and treasure for the rest of your life. And she agreed. Well, that Sunday after church, that was Sunday morning, then after church, all my, my four children were at the house for lunch. And I was asking Christopher again about the dream to see if he remembered any more about it when John Mark, who's my oldest, overheard our conversation. He was at that point living a couple blocks away with some of his friends, and he had not heard or known of the dream that Christopher had. So then John Mark said, well, I had a dream about your father too. And so I asked him about it, and he said, well, the dream, the setting was in Charleston, South Carolina at a beach house on the Isle of Palms. Now, he had all these details. And present there were you, what what was your mom, your dad, your mother's two grandparents, and you and your brother when you were little. And he said, um, that dream gave him a sense, too, of knowing my father. And so I thought, good grief, what in the world? So I called my mom again. I told her what happened. She told me something she had never told me before. When my brother and I were small boys, probably three in a year and a half, we lived in Charleston in a house on the Isle of Palms while my dad coached football at the Citadel. Now, I knew we had lived on the Isle of Palms. I don't think I'd ever told uh, John Mark anything about it. But dad coached football at the Citadel. We lived on the Isle of Palms. Now, here's what happened. The last time my mother ever saw her mother alive was standing together in the very setting John Mark had described. Now, here's something interesting. To get to our house from the mainland, you had to cross what was known as the infamous Cooper River Bridge. It's been replaced, but the Cooper River Bridge was a narrow, rusty, metal, long, dangerous two-lane bridge. And so standing outside our house, that this actually happened, that day John Mark saw in that dream, my grandmother said to my mother, I would have never gone across that bridge if these two little boys weren't on the other side. That was the last thing my grandmother ever said to my mother. They got in the car, drove back to due west South Carolina, and within a day or two, she had been hit by a car and died. The last thing my mother ever heard from her mother was in that very scene John Mark had that dream about. All on my dad's birthday. How amazing. 
Such is the amazing kindness of God. But that's not even the rest of the story. The actual name of what was known as the Cooper River Bridge was the Grace Memorial Bridge. Say that, Grace Memorial Bridge. Even that name contains a message. My grandmother's heart in crossing that bridge speaks of the Lord's heart for all of us. According to her own testimony, only love could have gotten her to cross that bridge. Love for me, love for my brother, love for my mom, I'm sure. Here's what I'm saying. We're the only things that got Jesus to cross that bridge from eternity into time. The fact that he appeared, the fact that the kindness of God appeared in Christ Jesus has this cosmic reality that if you were the only person on the other side of eternity that involved the kind of bridge Jesus had to cross, he would have crossed it. He would have crossed it. So if you can't see the kindness of God in your personal life, you can see the kindness of God in the reality of the gospel. Only love could get my grandmom across that bridge. It was a grace bridge. It was a memorial bridge. We remember, we need to remember this morning the grace of God in that bridge he crossed. One last thing. We left the Isle of Palms because that bridge broke down so much it couldn't be trusted, but the bridge Jesus crossed can be trusted. You can trust Jesus. You can trust in Jesus. His kindness. His kindness. His kindness is your portion. One of the psalmists said, Your gentleness, your gentleness has made me great. One one of the complications with being a truly admired Christian spiritual leader is a lot of times those guys are mean. Have you ever noticed that? They're self-focused. But Paul said kindness is an apostolic virtue. To thoroughly know Jesus, to embody the fruit of the spirit that he is, it will make you kind when you see that he's kind. That's where we started. What you focus on, you'll become. What you gaze at, you'll encounter. Okay. Let me ask you this. Anybody feel the Lord touch him this afternoon, the morning while we were? If the Lord was, you could feel his presence, just stand, just stand up. I'm going to pray for you. Everybody else, go home. No, it's messing with me. <laughs> Come on. Lord, we, we admire your work. Lord, we admire your work. I look through this room and I see the reality of that Ephesians verse for we are his workmanship, his poemos, his poem, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we should walk in them. Lord, I'm looking not at the, the refuse of humanity. I'm looking at the redeemed those who you've called, those who you've commissioned to walk 
in preordained places of success and kindness and goodness and love. So, Father, I pray that you would increase our awareness of your kindness, that you would heal our souls, that you would heal broken hearts. Holy Ghost, display the triumph of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus through the outpouring of your spirit in lives that transform them. I just ask that in your name, Jesus, and you are wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Open our eyes to see your wonder. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.